Whew. Hey, it's Daryl, a.k.a. Sunny, your resident dungeon master and host of the show. Before I jump into the episode, I just wanted to bring up that it's been some time since the last one, well over a year and a half. For those of you who are listening to the series about the current campaign, Rime of the Frostmaiden, there's no getting around the fact that the book took a backseat within the group and we didn't touch it shortly after this episode's recap. Busy schedules, unexpected life events, if you've been in the hobby for a while, you know how it goes. The usual things coming up in the face of weekly game night. So the campaign lost momentum between folks dropping and missing sessions, and we took a break. A long break, <laughs> not as long as between episodes here, but long enough that when we were ready to meet up again, there wasn't the drive to keep going with the adventure. Ultimately, that's a shame because I feel like as a DM, there's a lot to sink your teeth into with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. Lots of sandbox fun just waiting for you to flesh out and your players to explore. We did start playing again, however, thankfully. The group did not simply call it quits and move on. We brought back the campaign that brought our haphazardly assembled the Discord server together in the first place. My homebrew campaign, What Lurks Below. Of course, things still came up, still do. As much as I'd love to say we got to spend hours playing every week, that wasn't the case. But there's a real joy in the homebrew game that kept us going, adding to that storyline all these years after the first group of player characters got together in the swamp town of Fens Keep. That's what this show will be returning to, I think. I've been giving it a lot of thought in the time between this and the previous episode, even with this one's script sitting around for months waiting to be recorded. There's a lot of archive stuff I have for the for the What Lurks Below game that uh, at one point took up, you know, three nights a, a week for me, which was insane. I don't think I've ever had a time when I played uh, Dungeons and Dragons three times a week, let alone just being the same campaign. Now it's been nearly five years since that first session, so it's probably a good place to go for bringing up lessons and sharing the kind of experience that brings me back to the table time and time again, because that's what I want to do with this show itself, what I originally wanted to do. Uh, share what I've learned from playing these games I love with people I adore, spending time plucking characters from our imagination to craft stories that I know will stay with me <laughs> forever. I hope you'll pardon the sudden burst of sentimentality. It's been a while, um, definitely, and from wherever you are, whether you're listening for the first time or coming back after my long hiatus, thanks for listening. I hope you'll like what you hear, and stick around for new episodes coming up in the future. For those of you who were invested in the happenings of the Frostmaiden campaign, I hope those episodes about running against a cult of the reptile god were at least decent enough that you'll hang around to hear me gush about the homebrew game some more. In the meantime, I'll do my best regarding this campaign's abrupt yet eventful ending. Remind me whose idea it was to accept this job in the first place, Tessa said. The cold wind off the surface of Black Dinashir had gotten into her bones, despite her best attempts at keeping warm. Because I'll never forgive you for saying we should come out here. Tavesk smirked. Are you sure it wasn't you, princess, chasing tales from that little bard at the inn about sunken treasure? 
What better way to add to stories than a pile of gold at your feet? The ASMR blushed, the red spot, now her flushed cheeks. I don't think I should be the one getting fingers pointed at. After all, she huffed. The group of you were about to leave me to go off on your own. <laughs> a shame we didn't, Jorora said. Her head was all wrapped, and there were many places in the Underdark just as frigid as here. But she had never taken a liking to it, and it did nothing to assuage her tongue. What was that? I said, Jorora began, and turned to face Tessa, that it was a shame we didn't. You're a lot more pleasant to deal with when you're sleeping, so we thought it better to leave you like that. Before a retort could come her way, John stood up in the boat between them. My friends, he said, let's not start the day off in a foul mood, at least not amongst ourselves. Whatever does await us in this cave, we'll do a fine job of that. Please, let us all sit and prepare for the dangers ahead. The rest of the morning passed in silence until they came upon the first abandoned boat. From there, it was a short order to find the others along the shore. It bobbed, untethered, in the water amid some small ice flows, not far from the eight-foot high cliffs that abutted the shoreline. The mouths of four caves dotted the snowy cliffside, a short walk from the boat. Micah was the first to inspect the vessel and confirm the set of oars in it. This may belong to the fishes the captain has told us about, she said, then turned to the caves before them. There are no tracks on the ice, but I cannot imagine they would have gone elsewhere this far out from town. Great, Tessa said, and began to walk towards the caves at a brisk pace. I've had enough of this weather for a lifetime. We'll bear with it a little longer, Tivesk said, eyes cast upward to the sky. Looks like we have company. The others looked to see where their hobgoblin wizard did, and saw a pair of harpies descending upon them. They drew steel and made ready for battle. The group left at East Haven uh, early, before dawn, if light was capable of piercing the Frost Maiden's spell. For now, it was another gloomy morning, all the same as when they retired the night before. They had accepted the quest from Captain Arlagath to investigate the case of some missing anglers that had been last seen a ten day ago. This far out, it's dangerous to be gone from the safety of town walls for so long, so she figured it best to seek out a group of adventurers capable of handling such an encounter. Turns out the group who came in from Burnshander, the Rhymebreakers as they were beginning to fashion themselves, would do just fine. The first task would be procuring a boat. None of the party members were anglers themselves or just carrying a rowboat around in their inventory, so they made a quick exchange at the dock to procure one from a couple of early risers looking to get a jump on whatever fish were swimming in the waters at this hour. After all, angling required being out for hours in the stillness of the freezing cold on the lake to net a fine catch of knucklehead trout. The group paid the anglers to use their boat, although I'm sure they could have just taken one if they wished. It wouldn't have been hard to find one and sneak away with it. This group, though, were starting to grow more into heroes than scoundrels, and weren't looking to tarnish their reputation any more than they had given uh, what had transpired the previous night. Tessa caught up with them along the water, just as they were about to head out as well. But all that was just the player uh, showing up a bit later into the session, unsure if they would even make it to the game. Again, this goes back to my approach of not particularly wanting to run playing characters in a game. 
and instead just giving them some kind of side task to busy themselves with uh, off screen, as it were. Funny enough, I ended up having to run a player character um, uh, since we got back to the homebrew campaign, but that'll be a story for another time. So we were at full strength that night, which was great, because I don't believe I had any plans at all for rebalancing the encounters in the Cauldron Caves. The caves themselves ended up being a solid delve, both thematic and not too overpowering for a group of level 2 characters still making their rounds in the early part of the adventure. There's some cool lore and a solid encounter at the end that gives them a few options for how they wish to handle it. However, they had to deal with your usual entryway encounter. In this case, just a couple of harpies. Always good to have some kind of encounter at the beginning of a dungeon, and I think there's a couple ways you can handle it. If you plan to lean into it being more of an explorative dungeon, you could opt for a roleplay or puzzle encounter, but if it's what I guess you would call a um, traditional dungeon, then a combat encounter is always a good way to go. Plus, it can give you an idea of what your players are capable of throwing at you, which, uh, I'm going to be honest, I have a terrible time remembering what my players are capable of, and I play digitally, so I can even look at their character sheets at any point while we're playing, or even when we're not. They made short work of the Harpies, which I figured would be the case anyway in a 5 versus 2 situation. Harpies aren't even the most deadly of creatures, carrying just a challenge rating of 1, but that wasn't really the point of an encounter this early on. Just a test of resources and capabilities, maybe getting them to spend a spell slot or two. If you tend on just throwing them at a single encounter when they're fully prepared, you may want to have a phase two or sometimes three planned in case it swings so heavily in their favor you find the gravitas of the moment undone by a single cast of the die. Of course, nothing wrong either with you letting the players feel victorious in the face of their adversary. Your players intend to win in some capacity, and while I'm not at all advocating for a players versus dungeon master explicit style of game, I encourage you to take it as your solemn duty to bring joy to the table for your players to partake in. After all, I imagine bringing them happiness will bring some to you yourself. Uh, I may have diverged from where the original narrative of this was going, but that may also have to do with spending months between this script and recording, as it were. Getting back to the Harpies, who were swiftly brought low, the party approached the Cauldron Caves before them. It was here that the evidence of the missing uh, anglers had led them, and they were greeted by a choice of caves to explore. Three were along the higher ground, up 20-30 feet from the frozen ice to solid earth of the cave, and a fourth to the south, where the ice continued inward, a frozen river. The party chose this lattermost option and took care whilst trekking the hazardous floor. Thankfully for the group, there wouldn't be any uh, combat encounters on the ice, short of them dragging an enemy out from their hideout into the open. Uh, except one, I suppose, uh, since it does you well to always dangle the axe over their heads when hoping to encourage tension for your dungeoneers. Further up this frozen river leading into the cave, they came upon a small waterfall that held a dormant water weird beneath the thin ice. In order to bypass the creature lurking beneath the waterfall, each of them would have to make a DC-10 athletics check, otherwise the ice would break and the monster emerge. But their luck held. Each came out over the waterfall with ease, assisting those behind, and continued their exploration of the cavern. They went through the hall to their east, just above the waterfall, where the freeze gave way to ground, and went up a short, crudely carved staircase to a small ossuary. Ossuary? Oss... Oss... 
ossuary. There we go. <laughs> um, oh man, now I lost my place in the script. Ah! To a small ossuary. Fresh blood littered the floor, seen by the slatted light that shone through the fissures above the room, and it was spread amongst innumerable bones, trout spines, humanoid skeletons, and those of smaller creatures, along with scraps of clothing and armor and a few rusty weapons. As the party took to examining the various remains, another surprise awaited immediately before them in the piles. A frozen, frost giant skeleton, uh, partially encased in ice. Uh, this design is intentional. If the party realizes the danger and chooses to retreat, the two rounds that the undead behemoth spends breaking from its prison should be enough time for them to do so. If they'd rather face the danger, though, as brave adventurers are inclined, there's, uh, they receive, you know, two rounds of ass-kicking the giant can do little with to interfere. Whilst the creature is statted to be for a higher party level, the default 102 hit points it comes with are barely a challenge for those capable of dishing damage out in quick bursts. The fleshless hunk of marrow was made into a silent pile in the first few rounds of combat. The party continued digging around the scattered bits in the room and put together what they suspected. The blood was that of the missing anglers, but it not seem likely that it was the undead giant who caused their deaths. No. What led to their demise must have been a more sinister creature, and the party would find that to be the truth soon enough. Before that could transpire, though, Tessa traced her steps back to the ice river and continued along it, finding that it met with the ossuary down a later shared corridor. A handy thing to notice, should things become more dire um, for them than their previous foe. She also took note of what appeared to be a submerged grave, bones of other frost giants entombed beneath the ice where the water grew deep enough to hold them. The pool shone a cloudy, bright blue under the light pouring in from the opening above, illuminating the spring's silent partakers. From here, the river's path went north to an underground passage no longer navigable given the season's events. At the other end of the area, another opening, whose other side would meet with the ossuary. The group came up with a plan to split themselves, a few behind and in front, so that whatever danger lurked behind could be caught unawares, at least in part. And they were wise to do so. The sea hag, Maud Chiselbone, had taken up residence in the caves to use as her lair to prey upon whatever passerbys may come through. Her most recent victim, the anglers of East Haven, had been butchered atop a stone block for her cauldron. Heaped around were rusty watchers and the flayed corpses. She first attempted to greet the party in the guise of a decrepit old woman, a trick hags often employ to take advantage of a newcomer's kindness. She learned quickly this would not work on the adventurers. She doffed the illusion, revealing her sickly grayish-purplish flesh, unblinking bulging eyes, and stringy black hair interwoven with finger bones. A terrible sight, but one the party would not cower from. A fight ensued. And, as mentioned earlier, their idea for a pincer maneuver proved invaluable. A will-o'-wisp had hidden in the cavern, waiting for its mistress hag to call upon it, but with a steady stream of arrows from behind and sword slingings before them, it was made short work of alongside Maud Chiselbone. Uh, there is one mention of her attempting escape, although I can't recall if she was able to, given how long it's been twice over at this point. It's a familiar trick. She offered the group a chest of gold from the bottom of the lake, Lacadinishir, the fabled gold the party had heard of the night before in the tavern from the halfling's, uh, halfling bard's seance. Let me live, she says, and the treasure shall be yours. Her cries fell on deaf tears, however. Maud Chilzabone lay dead shortly after, self-same with the victims of her cauldron. 
and it was this cauldron of plenty that would, in turn, be a magical reward for the party. A handful of encounters, not all of them necessarily combat, a climactic finale, and an enchanted treasure to top off a day's adventure. After clearing out the lumps of flesh and organs from the weighty instrument, the group rolled the cauldron back to the boat with intent to return to town. The cauldron itself is a neat artifact. The book describes it as made of thick copper that has turned green with age. It sits roughly four feet wide, a mouth three and a half feet in diameter, and about 50 pounds. Embossed on its bulging sides are images of satyrs and nymphs in repose, holding ladles. The cauldron itself comes with a lid, has side handles, and five clawed feet to keep it from tipping. It's capable of providing a hearty hot stew, which can provide one nourishing meal for up to four people per gallon. The item can be used three times, resetting its function each day. I will say, nothing to stop you, of course, from maybe making this enough for five people if you have a slightly larger group of players. A handy item, certainly, for any group traversing the snowy landscapes of the Dale, but the party will soon find other uses for it in the days ahead, as they turn attention north along the shores of Lac Dinashire, seeking quests elsewhere in Ten Towns. As always, thank you for listening. You can find me at DMDC Podcast or send an email to dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out uh, or let me know about anything or have any thoughts about today's episode. If you like the show, you can subscribe to it on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, tell a friend or two to check it out. Have a great week.